Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions and you can visit our website irishhistoryshow.ie for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance Please take a moment to rate and review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media as we really do appreciate it. And we're very grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. We have a great show for you today. 2021 marks 100 years since the creation of Northern Ireland. To discuss this and the events that led up to the partition of Ireland, we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Cormac Moore. Cormac is an historian in residence with Dublin City Council. His previous works include the GAA versus Douglas Hyde, the Irish soccer split, and his most recent, Birth of the Border, the Impact of Partition in Ireland. Cormac, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Carl. Just to start off, when did partition first become used as a solution to the home rule crisis in Ireland? There have been rumblings during the, the first and second home rule crisis of separating the northeast of Ulster, treating the northeast of Ulster differently. Particularly Joseph Chamberlain, who was a, who was a liberal, who became a liberal unionist. He was against home rule, and he actually believed that there should be some kind of federal solution. And he suggested home rule parliaments in Ireland, in Belfast, and also even in Scotland, England, and so on. Um, so he was kind of the first to, to mute it, um, but. It wasn't really taken seriously then. There was probably no need because first and second home rule bills were defeated through normally parliamentary procedures. The ulcerisation of unionism really began from 1905 with the creation of the Ulster Unionist Council. And the main problem with the third home rule crisis was Ulster. It took centre stage um, and particularly the opposition from Ulster Unionists who were backed by their allies in Britain, the Tory party. That's when it really became taken seriously for the first time. You actually had a backbencher Liberal MP, TJ Agar Roberts. He actually put down an amendment to exclude four counties from Home Rule of Ireland. And actually, the Ulster Unionists put down their own amendment of excluding nine counties. So from then on, from 1912 onwards, there was a, a lot of talk, not just within Ulster Unionists or Tory circles, but even in the Cabinet. Lloyd George and Winston Churchill supported a county-by-county county exclusion at a very early stage. And, and then when it became obvious that Ulster were taking this very seriously, that they were arming themselves, they created a provisional government, they were supported to oppose Home Rule by every means possible by Andrew Bonner Law, the leader of the Tory party, who was considered an orange man and a fanatic by many people at the time. Then, then Herbert Asker, the British Prime Minister, decided that we're going to have to do something about Ulster. And we also have to remember the unions were very lucky with their allies in the, in the Tory party who 
really stuck by them and whatever the union is threatened, whether it was a civil war or using arms, the Tory party, or in many ways committing treasonous talk by, by uh, supporting them in such measures. But the Irish Home Rule Party, the Irish Parliamentary Party, were not so lucky with their allies, the Liberal Party, were quite lukewarm on, on Home Rule. Aspect didn't have that kind of crusade that uh, Gladstone brought to the Home Rule issue. He was looking at ways of accommodating unionism, and that's when uh, John Redmond was approached to consider some form of Home Rule. Cormac, by the time of the Home Rule crisis, you'd already been through a previous Home Rule crisis in the 1880s. Um, You had the famous phrase, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. But, you know, a century before that, it wasn't axiomatic that Ulster Protestants would support the Union. And so how different was the North from the rest of Ireland? And why were they so insistent that they wanted to be excluded from Home Rule? Yeah, well, that century, the 19th century, counted for a great deal in how, what what happened, particularly with Belfast. Everything happened really from Belfast. Um, which became the nerve centre of Ulster Unionism, opposition to Home Rule. And that changed. It was a very small city at the start of the 19th century. It actually overtook Dublin by the late 1800s as the largest city in Ireland per population. Um, but most importantly, it actually was very different in its, uh, I suppose, a, a commonality with Britain in terms of uh, adopting the Industrial Revolution. It was a hugely successful city. It, it, it had a thriving shipbuilding uh, industry, linen industry, and a lot of other auxiliary industries that spawned from its success in shipbuilding and linen. And it saw, many people in Belfast saw themselves as very different than Irish. They, you know, they, they considered themselves law-abiding people, whereas they saw the rest of Ireland as lawlessness, uh, lawless people. They had a very different experience with the land wars uh, in, in many respects as well. And they, they saw, obviously, the, the biggest difference was the religion factor, where there was a huge concentration of Protestants in the Northeast, particularly Presbyterians. Presbyterians... Uh, and, and took a lot of kind of control of the issue from, from the 1800s. Uh, and they were very, very heavily concentrated in the Northeast, much more, more so than Church of Ireland or Methodists. So a lot of differences were developing. And the problem is that if we look at that simplistic binary option between Protestant Unionists and Catholic Nationalists, we forget that there was a lot of nuances there. And a lot of, uh, it wasn't as clean cut as that. Many parts of Ulster were as backward as, as unions would think rural as uh, were parts of Connacht or Leinster or Munster and also there was a huge Catholic population in Ulster. Even in 1913 there was actually more nationalist MPs than there was uh, unionist MPs in all of Ulster and so it's too easy just to think that all of Ulster became against home rule and there was big uh, uh, parts of the province that was for home rule and also experienced the same kind of quality of life as the rest of, uh, of Ireland did. And to what extent was religion, now not religion as like a marker of identity, but actual religion a factor? You know, the famous unionist slogan is home rule will be Rome rule. Absolutely. It was a huge factor. And uh, even before uh, the third home rule bill was uh, introduced to the House of Commons, there was a, a number of uh, incidents that didn't help the home rule cause. The, 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 the Timura doctrine that, that basically said that any mixed marriage should go through the Catholic Church. And there was a very infamous case where woman, Mrs. McCann, she, she was married to a Catholic, Alexander McCann. She didn't want to have her marriage uh, through the Catholic Church. The marriage broke down and the husband you know, took off with the children. And this was huge news at the time. And then you also had another uh, directive from the Catholic Church that you couldn't take a court case against the Catholic Church without talking to a bishop. So these are all happening at the time of the hard home rule crisis. So this definitely was, was a very big concern for uh, Protestants in the North. And that it was a genuine fear that home rule would be Rome rule. 
Now, but if you look at the Tower of Home Rule Bill, it was, it was very specific. And in fact, Michael Logue, the Cardinal, and Primate of All Ireland, he wasn't a big fan of the Tower of Home Rule Bill because he saw the Catholic powers diminishing. Catholic uh, discrimination was prohibited under the Tower of Home Rule Bill. So although unions had fears, in some ways they, they were alleviated by the actual framing of the Tower of Home Rule Bill. Now, Cormac, could we talk about unionism as a nine-county phenomenon? Afterwards, it's almost as if the six counties had existed from time immemorial. But when you look at things like the UVF and the Ulster Unionist Council, they were organised on a, a nine-county Ulster basis, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And some of the most uh, fiercest Coventers were actually from Monaghan or Cavan or Donegal. Absolutely, the, the whole trust for opposition to home rule around the time of the Tower Home Rule Crisis was of the nine-county phenomenon, as you said. Now, it became impractical for, for Ulster Unionists, though, to, to think that they could get all of the nine counties. They didn't really want it, and that, that, that crystallised over the coming years, but they, they did feel that it was too close for comfort in terms of the population numbers. We're, we're obviously just going on the 1911 census, because that was the, uh, the last one before partition and the one subsequent to 1926. But at, at 1911 census, you had about 55 Protestant, 45% Catholic in Ulster. And um, so it, they would not have had a, a, you know, a strong enough majority, they felt, if, with the nine counties. This really came to a head in 1916, and then obviously with the Government of Ireland bill, it really caused huge friction in, within Ulster Unionism. And you know, people from Monaghan, Cavan, Donegal were absolutely disgusted by being thrown to the Southern administration. And they did bring up the fact that they were as strong supporters of opposition to home rule as anyone else in Ulster was. And they also died in great numbers in the Battle of the Somme, you know, fighting for um, the 36th Division. So, yeah, it, it did cause huge friction within uh, Ulster Unionism. Well, as you say there, Cormac, when you look back at the Ulster Covenant, it really implies not an inch of Ulster will be given up, not, not an inch of the six counties will be given up. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to look at Edward Carson. Everyone, a lot of people say he, he was only interested in all of Ireland remaining within the Union and he was opposed to partition. I, I just don't see how that adds up. I think a lot of what he has said is misquoted. He, he, to me, was a person who put forward partition, but specifically six county exclusion. He told Boner Law that... Uh, it's going this way, it's going towards the exclusion of six counties, and I'm going to make sure that it's permanent exclusion. That was in 1913, and then he, he that's the, the uh, policy adopted in 1914 publicly, particularly at the uh, Buckingham Palace uh, Conference in July of 1914, just before the start of the First World War, where he insisted, we did not want a stay of execution, we want permanent exclusion of six counties. They never said uh, nine counties, they were very specific on six counties, um, and that was led by Carson. And, and Craig behind the scenes, but Craig played a much more prominent role in making sure it was a six-county solution with the Government of Ireland bill. And you know, Cormac, there's a famous quote from Carson that's wheeled out at every opportunity, you know, what a fool I was and so on, you know, implying that Carson wasn't happy with the creation of Northern Ireland. Uh, but it's, it's more complicated than that, as I think you're fond of saying yourself. The amount of people I hear misusing that quote to say he was opposed to partition, he wasn't. This was his maiden speech in the House of Lords after the signing of the treaty. He was saying that the uh, Ulster Unionists were treated as puppets in the, in the game of getting Conservative Party into power because um, he believed that the Conservative Party had betrayed Ulster Unionists by trying to get them to go into an, an all-Ireland parliament as opposed to true Westminster. And he also f- felt that the Conservative Party conceded far m- too much to Republicans with the treaty. So 
but certainly it was nothing against our partition. It was giving too much to Sinn Féin, as he saw it. Yeah, now we're going to get on to the nuts and bolts of partition and the creation of Northern Ireland in a second, but I want to have one more question about Southern Unionism. So when yeah. did the relationship break down between Ulster Unionists and Southern Unionists? Because it seems that the latter was very much cut adrift by their, their Northern brethren. Yeah, it, it, was, it was going that way from 1912. And, and Carson was actually quite dismayed with the Southern Unionists. He just felt that they, they weren't doing enough and they'd accepted their loss, that they were going to be in a Home Rule Parliament. Once the idea of excluding Ulster or part of Ulster came up, that's when you see this drift. But that, that uh, worsens over the years, particularly from you know, 1916 when, when Lloyd George tries to uh, bring about a solution and Ulster Unionists, through Carson, uh, vote heavily in favour of six-county exclusion. And then even the Irish Convention, you see our Southern Unionists working with the Irish Party to come up with a, a kind of a home rule solution for all of Ireland which is totally opposed by Ulster Unionists. So it, it really becomes public and becomes almost terminal by 1917, by the time of the Irish Convention, and it only gets worse after that. By the time Home Rule Parliament is suggested for what becomes Northern Ireland, many Southern Unionists actually create an anti-partition league. By that stage, it was a, the split was, was pretty much final. Yeah, you know, people generally wouldn't consider it today, but if you do look at the results of both the 1918 election and the local elections in 1920, there is quite substantial unionist votes in places like Dublin and Cork. It's not just an Ulster phenomenon. Well, there does seem to be a difference between Northern Unionism and Southern Unionism, that Northern Unionism seems to be more broad-based. There's a lot of middle-class involvement, and at a, a ground level, there's a lot of working-class involvement, whereas Southern Unionism, and maybe this is unfair, but it seems to be a lot more deferential there's a lot more titled aristocrats in the running of Southern Unionism. How do you think that had an effect? Just on that point, it is a very good point you make, because that is true. There's a far greater depth to the support for Ulster Unionism among the classes. And that in many ways was down to Craig in particular, and also you could say Carson as well, in that they unified all of, of pretty much Protestants in the Northeast to be opposed to Home Rule. The labour issue was becoming, uh, you know, quite large. It was, it was dangerous for Ulster Unionists. And even though the leaders of Ulster Unionists were from the upper layers of Ulster society, the support for Ulster Unionism was cross-class support. That, was, you could see, was, was a, a major achievement by Ulster Unionists. They remained united throughout this whole period, even when there was a, there was, there was a lot of issues that were, you would imagine there would have been a lot of commonality between bread and butter issues that Protestants and Catholics would have faced in places like Belfast. And they did cooperate to some degree. But when it came to the, the political issue of the day of being part of United Ireland or being part of Britain, there was a huge support in Ulster. And it was very unified um, against home rule and ultimately for partition. Um, so there's a big difference there. And, and you're right about Southern Unionism. It, it was always mainly, you know, the, the landed gentry, upper middle class. What was made their main support was um, and where most people who were involved in the organisation politically would have been from. And, you know, we often speak, as you said, Cormac, in binary terms of nationalists and unionists. A third factor, though, is labour. What was the attitude of the different strains of labour politics to partition from the early days onwards? Labour um, were in a dilemma, no question about it. Particularly in, in the North, you had most of the people who led labour actually were anti-partition. You know, not, not, not necessarily because they were nationalists. They just feared they feared a orange government, the old unionist government, more than anything. But their supporters were primarily 
unionist answer. So it was quite difficult and they, they had to tread a fine balance and um, often by just ignoring the national issue and, and focusing on bread and butter issues, welfare and jobs and so on. But it was quite difficult. And th but then you also had uh, trade union bodies, you know, like the ITUC and uh, INTO, who did become political and they, they were seen as being aligned with Sinn Féin. They supported the anti-prescription campaign, whereas there was little support for Belfast. They backed away from contesting both the 1918, 1921 elections. And they were seen as some members of those unions as being pro Sinn Féin and it, it did alienate them from them. So it was, it was, it was quite difficult. After, after partition happened, you know, most trade unions maintained their All-Ireland presence, as did most other organisations. But they had to be mindful that Northern Ireland was a different place. So they, they had a kind of devolved setup. They democratised their structures a lot more. And they, they actually created Northern Ireland Committee so that they, that they accepted there was a difference, but uh, they still wanted to maintain a Turkish County presence. Well, Cormac, what was the reaction of Northern nationalism at the start of the home rule crisis? First of all, I think as in 1886 and 1893, they, they felt that it would go away. Maybe it was a bit of bluff by unionists. But then they realised, you know, that unions were serious this time and, you know, that it was a lot, a lot different than before. And particularly with the Conservative Party so strongly back in uh, Ulster Unionists, that's, that's where you, you have the idea, like where, where Redmond starts canvassing the Catholic Church and he asked him, you know, would we, would we consider something like a temporary home rule of some of the counties, but to be come back into a home rule parliament eventually? And it, it really, it's this kind of opposition within not just Irish nationalism, but with Northern nationalism really kind of goes centre stage in 1916. When Lloyd George is always uh, he uh, offers uh, Carson permanent exclusion and he offers Redmond temporary uh, exclusion. So Redmond has to try and win over Northern nationalists to this. And he's backed by Joe Devlin, the leading nationalist MP in, in Belfast. There's a big difference between those who knew that no matter what solution was going to happen, they were going to be in a, in a partition solution because they were in Belfast and, and that was never going to uh, not be in a, in a excluded zone. But the nationalists in Fermanagh and Tyrone and, and in Donegal and Cavan and Monaghan, all, all along the border, what, what became the border, they had a very different view. They were totally opposed to it. But ultimately in July 1916, Redmond and Devlin were able to swing enough people to, uh, to vote for that solution. They were adamant it was only temporary. But at this time, Sinn Féin is rising because of, obviously, fallout from the Easter Rising. But not just that, it was also the Catholic Church swung in many ways against the Irish party because of its, its seemingly support for, you know, compromising on a regular basis on partition. And even Joe Devlin admitted himself, for all the compromising and talking we've done, all it's done is alienate our supporters. And that, that was actually a big factor in the, the 1918 general election, as well as the conscription crisis which really was the nail in the coffin for the Irish party. And then you have this different brand of nationalism, Sinn Féin. But there was also, there was also different viewpoints within Sinn Féin as well. Father O'Flanagan, Michael O'Flanagan, you know, famously um, said that you know, we, we can't expect unionists to come into uh, an Irish setup if, if uh, we don't want to be in a British setup. So you know, there were some people who, who would have accommodated different solutions. And certainly not all Sinn Féin members wanted a republic. So it, it's quite complicated. You know, there, was, there was a lot of different strains of, uh, of viewpoints on nationalism. But the universal belief was that there shouldn't be no uh, partition, no permanent partition. And that has always been remained the case within nationalism, whatever strain it is. I mean, there's kind of an irony, though, isn't there, where Sinn Féin, as you rightly say, excoriated the Parliamentary Party and John Redmond for temporarily accepting partition in the Home Rule crisis. 
and but Sinn Féin were no more successful at reversing it than the IPP were. Absolutely, yeah. If you look at Sinn Féin policy in the northeast, it's very incoherent. If there is a policy, and that, that in many ways is because they weren't strong in the north compared to where they were elsewhere in Ireland. If you look at the 1921 uh, northern election, the first northern election. Um, of the six MPs elected in that parliament, so only one was uh, not elected also in a Southern Ireland constituency. And most of them were leading figures in the South, like De Valera, Collins, Griffith, McNeil, so on. So, you know, they, they, they just they weren't strong on the ground compared to where they were elsewhere in the North. They didn't think about it. You know, they, they really, they genuinely believed that once Britain left, that, you know, Unionists uh, would happily come into United Ireland, like totally naive and it just what, it totally misreading of of, uh, of the absolute uh, uh, stringent opposition and uh, violent opposition that that unions had towards the Dublin Parliament, um, and they totally misread that situation. Their first policy on the North was really the Belfast boycott, which in many ways led to more permanent partitions, certainly a more of a psychological partition. So, and the, the first time they really dealt with it as a policy was from the truce onwards, the true to treaty negotiations. They had to actually deal with it head on. Uh, but at that stage, you know, you could say that the, the horse revolted because, uh, you know, Northern Ireland had been set up and uh, they, their, their incoherence remained. They, they still kept on claiming that, you know, it's all down to British guile, nothing else, and uh, you know, unions would come in. You know, they, they blundered greatly when it, when it came to a coherent policy on the North. I mean, viewing partition as a nationalist problem, you know, there's kind of two different issues, isn't there? Like there's people like Fermanagh Tyrone, Derry City, who could see themselves accommodated within a small partition in the southern state or the nationalist state, let's say. But for, let's say, Catholics in West Belfast and east of Ulster, it's a different problem, isn't it? Yeah, as I was saying, they knew that they were going to be in some partition um, settlement. And in many respects, even though Joe Devlin and, and all Irish Party, what became the Irish Party, you know, of, of the Irish Party afterwards, they did support the Boundary Commission and they, they wanted to see, you know, a plebiscite, which would have seen big parts of the border areas go to the south. But, but I'd say a lot of them were, were kind of, were okay with it remaining a bigger minority of Catholics in partition, as opposed to, you know, a, a rump state where there'd been a lot fewer Catholics and, and they felt it, they could be mistreated a lot more, a lot, lot worse if, uh, if that had been the case. So yeah, there was this dilemma within Northern nationalism. Far areas around, you know, Derry City and Tyrone and Fermanagh, they genuinely did believe, you know, with the Boundary Commission, uh, I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but uh, they, 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 they always felt it was a temporary solution and that they would eventually go into the Irish Free State. So, so they obstructed and ignored the, the Northern institutions as best they could because by accepting it, then they felt that that, that would kind of lead to a level of permanency um, to it. So, so they, 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 they believed the best policy was to ignore it, ignore the institutions, recognise all Aaron. And that could create a lot of problems as well. So there is an impetus to get some type of a, a home rule settlement on the books and come to some type of solution. Particularly after 1916, you have the rise of Sinn Féin. There's all the stuff going on with the First World War. What is the British reaction? How did the British go about trying to get everybody on board to have some type of workable solution? Well, they didn't try to get everyone on board. That's, that's the reality. They thought up this idea of an Irish convention in 1917 to allow Irish people to solve their own problems. But that was a, a gigantic failure, as uh, FSL Lyons said. But then, then after, after the war, we have to remember that the Third Home Rule Act was on the statute book. So that was going to come into the law once the peace treaties had been signed. 
Now, I think the final peace treaty was signed, I think, in the early to mid-20s. So, you know, they, they actually had a bit more time than they, they realised. But they, uh, they didn't know that. So they, they actually decided in the summer of 1919 to repeal, basically, uh, instead of repealing the actual Turtle Home Rule Act, to bring in another one, the Fourth Home Rule Bill, which became the Government of Ireland Bill. So Lloyd George set up a committee led by Walter Long, a rabbit uh, anti-Sinn Féin or a rabbit unionist, and there was zero contribution from nationalists whatsoever. So there was no attempt by the British to involve nationalists of any hue you know, in providing a settlement for Ireland at that stage. The Government of Ireland Act ultimately was a way to solve the Ulster question and not the overall Irish question. Um, in the way it was, it was framed, and even with the, the actual amendments to the original bill, were all in line with what Ulster Unionists want. They wanted some part of Ireland to work this, because they knew that they'd lost the, uh, the other part of Ireland. So they wanted a solution, a kind of a ready-made solution within Ulster, and then before they went and talked to the rest of Ireland. But that's not clear-cut either, because I think they, they, even Lloyd George was very uh, lukewarm about the Government of Ireland bill. The, the person who proposed in Parliament, Ian McPherson, who was pretty much on the way out, the Chief Secretary of Ireland, he was lukewarm on it. So there was this kind of disbelief at the time that this wasn't going to come into be anyway. This was a, this had less support than any other um, home rule measure. Ulster Unionists didn't want it either. Um, so yeah, was it going to work? You know, at the time, there was very little uh, hope for it um, actually coming into force. Yeah, I think you can say that there's a clash between two different agendas here, even on the, let's say, the pro-British side. You know, there's the people who believed in the empire who were happy enough with a united Ireland and home rule as long as it was a loyal dominion. And then there was the Ulster Unionists who are, in a way, a kind of nationalist, a kind of minority nationalist, in a way. Yeah, but I think with the Ulster Unionists, though, were always more aligned with the empire than with actually Britain itself. You know, that, that, that was kind of a, a lot of their Britishness kind of came from this notion of empire and being part of that empire. But, but you have to remember as well the arithmetic. And I, I've always said this, the phrase often goes, the look of the Irish, but from 1912 onwards, it was the look of the Ulster Unionists because everything went their way. Not, not just that in the 1918 election, they had a huge success. It wasn't just Sinn Féin who, who had a great election, it was Ulster Union as well. But most importantly, in 1918, it was the election results in Britain where Lloyd George's National Coalition won a huge majority. But importantly for Ulster Unionists, the Tories were by far the biggest party, by far the biggest party. So Lloyd George, who had nominally supported Home Rule um, for all of Ireland in, in 1912, he was ham- hamstrung by the Conservatives, who had some members who were as opposed to Ulster in a Home Rule settlement as Ulster Unionists were, people like Bonner Law and Balfour and so on. So they were in the heart of government, and in many ways they were controlling government because they had the biggest number, they had the more numbers than Lloyd George's uh, Liberal coalition. So yeah, the, the dynamics within Britain as well were very important at the time. And Lloyd George, who, let's, let's be quite frank about it, morally didn't really care. To him, it was all about him getting that settlement. All he wanted was a settlement. He didn't care what it was, as long as it was a settlement. But at that juncture, he was hamstrung by the Conservative Party, who nominally were very supportive of the Ulster Unionist cause. One of, one of the only things they had in their manifesto about Ireland was that there should be no coercion of Ulster into an all Ireland parliament. Now, that did wane, you know, in, in the intervening years, but it was, it was strong enough to actually bring about the, the Government of Ireland Act and, and even the, the great, great threat to Northern Ireland after it was founded with the treaty negotiations, that Conservative base came to uh, Craig and Northern Ireland's cause and led to the, the ultimate solution that we had. So Cormac, could you talk about the Long Committee and how it looked at the issue of the border and not just like, you know, 
the six counties, but maybe rejigging the actual boundaries of those six counties? Well, the, the Long Committee originally proposed that nine counties would form the Ulster Parliament. Um, so, so the Northern Ireland Parliament would have been nine counties. And they were, they were quite adamant on that because on paper, they were saying they wanted United Ireland ultimately. And they're going to you know, bring in what measures they could that United Ireland would organically happen. And they felt that it would more likely happen with a far greater Catholic minority in the north through nine counties as it would with six counties. And they obviously wanted this Council of Ireland as well, um, which would have had 20 people from each parliament, north and south, meeting together. And I'm working, and they had a lot of uh, uh, cross-border bodies, you know, related to railways. They, they even suggested a, a common Supreme Court, but they changed that when it came to the, the final act. So, so there, was, there was a lot of attempts on paper to work it so that it would be towards United Ireland. But Craig's a very important figure here, because at the time, Craig was actually in the heart of British government. Walter Long, who, who led the committee, that devised Government of Ireland Bill, he was uh, suffering a lot of ill health. You know, he, he suffered a huge amount of ill health for much of his life. And he was the first Lord of the Admiralty. Craig actually was, was uh, his, what we would call junior minister. He was the, the uh, financial and parliamentary secretary. Because uh, Long was away uh, for su- such long periods with ill health, Craig in many ways became the first Lord of the Admiralty. So he had uh, close contact with all of the people who were involved in devising this solution for Ireland. And he actually, uh, asked for a boundary commission he did not want nine counties he felt it was it was too insecure for unionists you know as i mentioned previously it was a, you know about 55 45 protestant catholic you might have had a three four majority in northern Ireland parliament which is very unstable um, so he wanted a lot bigger majority and he insisted on six counties and failing that he, he referred a boundary commission of the area so that it would uh, be more clean cut of course in, in when the treaty negotiations was which when he wasn't involved in he was totally opposed to this odious boundary commission, but he obviously had his citadel at that stage, so he didn't want an inch to be to removed from his territory. The pressure was developed from Ulster Unionists that it had to be six counties. And there was a lot of internal debate within Ulster Unionism. And as I mentioned earlier, well, unionists from Cabin Monaghan and uh, Donegal were disgusted and, and left the Ulster Unionist Council in great numbers. So it was only when the, the Government of Ireland bill came to the House of Commons in the spring of 1920 that the British government backed down on the nine counties parliament and insisted on six counties. One of the what ifs here is what was proposed in 1920 in the Government of Ireland Act was two home rule parliaments, one in Dublin, one in Belfast, and a Council of Ireland with a view to eventual reunification. And one what if is what if the Southern nationalists by now dominated by Sinn Féin had accepted that? Was there a possibility of unity on that basis? Maybe there would have been eventually, but I just think the environment, we have to look at the environment at the time, the war of independence was starting. The fact that no nationalists were even consulted, like why would nationalists accept a solution when they have no consultation whatsoever? You know, they have been involved in the framing of it. They didn't even get to meet any of the long committee, although there were some nationalists left in the House of Commons. I think there were seven, like six in Ireland, and T.P. Connor in Liverpool. They, they decided not to uh, get involved in the government of Ireland bill either. And, and actually, uh, Joe Devlin's um, said it himself, though, this idea, this is the first time that the British government decided that instead of Ulster being, exclu- or part of Ulster being excluded from uh, um, Dublin Parliament, but they actually remain in Westminster, they actually created a home rule parliament for Ulster. And Devlin knew this was, this was very dangerous. This was actually the worst type of partition and permanent partition. It would have been a better solution for United Ireland, I personally think, if counties had remained within Westminster than what happened and actually what, what developed was a northern citadel for Protestant rule 
and that could only have happened through an Ulster Parliament. So I think nationalists were, were very wary of, of what was happening. And then they saw, as the bill was being drafted, all the changes were favouring Ulster Unionists. The ability to, to remove PR came up, which, which was a big safeguard for minorities. And, and when, when that was kind of a removed as a safeguard, that, that was a big problem for Catholics. You, you had loads of other amendments as well, which, uh, which really favoured Ulster Unionists not being ever part of the United Ireland. It's, it's very unlikely you could get a solution when the two main warring parties, for want of a better term, are not involved in those uh, negotiations. It's a bit like uh, uh, Jared Kushner's solution for the Israel-Palestine conflict or, um, last year. He only spoke to uh, the Israeli side and didn't ex- expect the Palestinians to accept it. Why would they accept it if they're not involved in the negotiations? Yeah, and of course, one of the problems is that you know, Sinn Féin have moved so far beyond home rule now they're demanding complete independence. They are, but that's, that's not as clear-cut either as well. As I said, not all Sinn Féin would have accepted a republic. In fact, they didn't accept a republic. They accepted Dominion uh, Settlement. So Sinn Féin was not as dogmatic as a lot of people have made out. And unionists did speak to Sinn Féin. You know, Craig met with de Valera in May 1921. He met with Collins and had pacts with Collins in 1922. So there was a lot more scope than you would think there was. Even in all Ireland bodies, where councillors were working together, Sinn Féiners did work with Ulster Unionists. So, you know, this idea that was, it was a binary, two parties kind of would never talk to each other, nothing to do with each other. Yeah, there was a lot of people, yeah, absolutely held that, that opinion, but it wasn't as clear-cut as, uh, as some make out. I, I do think Sinn Féin had, had certainly had the point in the British involvement in all of this. You know, it's not just the case that the Unionists didn't want to go into United Ireland. The security forces that they had, and in many ways, all of the measures they took, were supported and paid for by the British. The, the Union's opposition, I don't think, would have been as strong if they uh, didn't have the full support of the British Treasury and, and money and, and political power. Well, Unionism's big justification for wanting to be excluded from Home Rule was that this was an area where people didn't give their consent to be ruled under a Dublin Parliament. But when we look at the 1920 local government election results, there are county councils and rural district councils and corporations that don't vote unionists. So like this argument that unionism is giving that the six county area is going to be largely homogenous unionist and the people in this area don't want home rule under Dublin Parliament doesn't really ring true. Yeah, no, it's a good point, actually. There was a meeting of the chair people of the county councils of Ulster and after 1920 elections, five of them were actually nationalists, you know, only four were, were unionists of, of the different counties. So yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, actually, the, the 1920 local elections is a, is a very chastening moment for Ulster unionists. It was a very poor result for them. Labour did extremely well, as did nationalists. Nationalists took control of uh, Fermanagh and Tyrone and for the first time since uh, 1688, there was actually a, a Catholic Lord Mayor of Derry. It was a hugely uh, um, embarrassing election for unions. And in, I, I would imagine, and just looking at the archives, it really spurred them on to do really well in the Northern Ireland Parliament elections, which they, they did tremendously well out, out of the 52 seats to 140. In fact, all 40 unionist candidates were elected. They were uh, very aware of what had happened in 1920 local elections, losing those vitally important councils. They, you know, they actually lost a lot of other uh, urban councils, rural councils as well. You wouldn't have thought of before. Belfast, where they had always had a huge majority. That, that uh, was dwindled a lot from 1920. It does uh, uh, put paid to that whole notion that you know, it was a homogeneous uh, area of Protestants and Unionists. There was a lot of different uh, groupings in the North than, than often uh, meets the eye. 
The unionist narrative, Cormac, on this is that it's an act of self-determination and so on. And the nationalists, northern nationalists especially, rejoinder is that the reality is also that right from the start, there was violence directed against the Catholic minority right from the beginning of the home rule crisis in 1912 and before. So how did violence accompany partition? It came to a head really in the summer of 1920. First of all, uh, the IRA was beginning to make some inroads into Ulster. There's a lot less activity, you know, 1919 in, in Ulster than there was in the rest of Ireland. Um, and you see it in Derry, first of all. Um, Adrian Grant has written about uh, sectarian killings of both sides in Derry. And this moves uh, further east to, to Belfast only you know, a few weeks later, particularly after the uh, 12th of July. And you've got uh, Carson plays a prominent role of rising tensions and saying, we'll have no Sinn Féin, we will do whatever it takes, it's up Sinn Féin. This invasion of Sinn Féin coming into North. So then they started uh, um, rejuvenating the Ulster Volunteer Force. Re- remember, they still had all their arms from the third home rule crisis. So they already had a lot more arms anyway than the IRA had. The IRA's numbers of arms was a lot less in Ulster than it was in, in other parts of Ireland. It was a genuine belief among Solar Unionists that uh, Sinn Féin and IRA were going to do exactly in Ulster what they had done in other parts of the country. And you look at the RIC, the RIC was, was literally shrinking in, in size. It was only in a few big barracks at that stage outside of Ulster. And, and the Ulster Union saw this as a big threat. What, what, what is hard to reconcile this, though, is that when someone, a prominent figure, is killed, like uh, um, Smith or Swansea, just the, the sheer scale of the attacks on Catholic property, on lives, and so on, it's just it's hard to reconcile with that. But it's it just not com- commensurate with what they saw as a threat. And most of the violence and expulsions were directed at normal you know, civilian Catholics who weren't involved in the conflict at all. And the, the numbers were too great to, to go... This, this is a real threat. You know, this, is a, this is a coordinated campaign in many respects with the burning of houses, the burning of businesses. You do see an element of, of people trying to remove Catholic populations from whole towns or, or whole areas. You know, it, it, it's very sectarian in nature, the violence, compared to other parts of Ireland. And obviously this is all happening as the Government of Ireland bill is uh, going through Parliament. And, and Joseph Devlin says this, he, he's incredulous, going, why are you going through with this bill? I mean, look at what's happening in the North. You know, you know, how can you have these people? You're going to give them full powers of government when they're doing this to our people. That, that wasn't listened to by the British government. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems, I suppose, with talking about this as two equal sides is that they're not treated equally by the British government. So, for example, you know, you talk about the arming of the or the rearming of the Protestants. But what, one thing you see in 1920, Cormac, I've seen this from looking at the border region, is the Unionists are disarmed by the state uh, in response to IRA raids for arms, but then rearmed again in what's effectively a militia and the Ulster Special Constabulary. Yeah, well, they, they had their own vigilante groups. You know, you had the uh, Basil Brook in, in the Fermanagh Vigilance and you had others in Armagh. And they, they, were, they were supported by Ulster Unionists, but they're, what, what they have claimed is that they wanted to make sure that uh, there wasn't too much indiscipline and that they, they were in control of, of the levels of violence that could be perpetrated by the loyalist community. So Craig insisted that basically what was the, was going to be the, the membership of the UVF would actually be a legitimate army. Because the UVF at the time was, was not a legitimate army. It was a legal army. If they got killed or, or something happened to them, you know, they, they had no rights whatsoever, even though the British turned a blind eye to, to what they were doing. Craig insisted and got an Ulster Special Constabulary, which was paid fully by the British, but it, it gave them legitimacy to, you know, to carry out acts against with the IRA, but ultimately the specialists got involved in a lot of reprisals and just targeted Catholics, let alone members of the IRA. 
And that was given legitimacy by the British. And very importantly, it was financed fully by the British. You're talking huge money. I, I look at the, the archives in Kew, the, the UK archives. And for 1922 alone, I think Craig was saying normally security would cost about two and a half million pounds a year, which, which was a lot of money at the time. But 22 was, was so bad that they had to get an extra, you know, double that amount um, to deal with the security issues, all paid for by the British. So yeah, so, so it definitely wasn't treating like with like at the time. Cormac, what was the reaction of the nationalist community to the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament in 1921? Well, I think the best person to sum it up would be Cardinal Michael Lowe. He was invited to the opening and he, he declined because he had a prior engagement, as he said. The nationalist community, if you look at the huge celebrations when King George V comes to Belfast, there's a big problem there. And you've got a whole community absent from those celebrations. It, it was a, one community embraced him, one did not. In fact, the IRA responded by attacking some of the troops at the border between Loudoun and Armagh and Adeville and uh, killed four soldiers and 80 horses um, the day after um, the opening of the parliament. So you, you also had, as I mentioned before, county councils like Fermanagh and Tyrone. They decided to ignore the new entity and um, paid allegiance to the Dáil instead, um, as did other, many other rural and urban district councils. So, so ultimately the Nash has decided and we're going to ignore this uh, as much as we can. We're not going to get involved in, in this jurisdiction whatsoever. All the nationalist MPs, only, only 12 of them out of 52, six Sinn Féin and six uh, UIL, they didn't take their seats in the Northern Parliament. As the Northern Parliament elected the Senate, the Senate became fully unionist as well. So, so you had basically one, only one community uh, actually embracing Northern Ireland and accepting it as an entity, whereas Catholics pretty much ignored it as best they could for, for the, the first while anyway. Ronan Fanning argues that the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament cleared the way for the truce in the South and negotiations with the Republican leadership in the South. Do you go along with that? Do you think that they saw the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament as settling the Ulster question? And now you move on to the relatively easier, from their point of view, Southern question. Yeah, it's definitely a factor. That the, I, I presume you're referring to Ronan Fanning's Fatal Pacts, which is a, it's a wonderful one for a book. It, it really is a, it's a fantastic book. My only issue with that book, and I, I actually do genuinely think it's a great book, is that he's too ready to accept the British viewpoint, you know, and actually um, go along with the, you know, the obstacles they had. I, I just felt he, he could have uh, um, worked a bit more on the, the nuances within British and, and the, the flexibility they had in terms of some of their movements. Uh, but he, he's right to some degree about the British cabinet even from 1920, said, look, we want to get the Northern Parliament up and running before we, we, we even talk to Sinn Féin. And even in late 1920, once the Government of Ireland Act passed, there were a number of, uh, of opportunities to have a truce at that stage. And one of the reasons was to, look, let's get the Northern Parliament up and running. The British military told the British Cabinet that they, they'll have the, the situation under control by April, May 1921. So let's have the elections then. And, and Jan Smuts, the you know, South African leader, he was heavily involved in, in this. And he, he said, look, you have Northern Ireland up and running. It is partition is copper facet, even though I would argue it wasn't. And uh, now is the time to, to get a settlement. But it wasn't the only reason. Like, there, there was no point in the British continuing on with the war, really, because they, they tried a lot of tougher measures and they weren't working. You know, May and June were the worst months for British and, and police casualties. And, you know, the, the only other option other than a settlement was you know, go, as Neville McCready, the, the British Commander-in-Chief in Ireland said, go all out or get out. And if you look at the go all out option, it just wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to be palatable to the British public. It wasn't going to 
ultimately stop the strength of the IRA. In fact, it would have brought more people to the IRA ultimately. So they're going to have to come up with the truth anyway, I think. But that, that did give momentum, though. And King George V's speech, opening parliament, was considered a conciliatory speech of, of forgive and forget and did pave the way for, for talks between De Valera and, and Lloyd George. So Cormac, how does the Anglo-Irish Treaty deal with the issue of partition? Well, it, it does deal with it a lot. I, I do think people often just think that the Anglo-Irish Treaty was just about sovereignty and that was it. The, the main um, arguments and disagreements that, that arose, not just with the treaty negotiations, but even the build-up to those negotiations with, with the, the talks between De Valera and Lloyd George, Ulster was the problem, ultimately. Sinn Féin would have accepted Dominion Home Rule Settlement on an all-Ireland, you know, if it was, if it was an all-Ireland basis. They never even asked for a republic. Well, De Valera said, look, if you're not going to give us, a, um, have Ulster in the in all-Ireland parliament, you know, we want full independence for the South. Um, but he didn't, he devised his external association idea, which, which wasn't a republic. Ultimately, Ulster was where things hinged on. And what is often forgotten is that Craig was under huge pressure at the time from Lloyd George and others, even members of the Conservative Party, people like uh, Austin Chamberlain, who actually was the leader temporarily, while Boner Law was uh, recovering from illness. They tried to pressurise, Jan Smuts tried to pressurise as well, Craig and his colleagues into accepting, you have your Northern Ireland Parliament, but it has to be autonomous within uh, Dublin Parliament, not Westminster. And they put a lot of pressure on, not just in, in July, but in November as well. Griffiths noticed that once... Boner Law returned to the scene and you had uh, Churchill as well was, was prominent as well as Balfour who was always uh, for a full exclusion of Ulster. Craig's resolve didn't waver at all and, and he stuck to his uh, you know his notion of not an inch you know what we have we hold we're going to stick on our impregnable rock. So you know that, 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 but there was a lot of pressure. If you look at all of the talks that happened in, in October to December a lot of it came down to Ulster and, and that's where the whole idea of the Boundary Commission comes up. Lloyd George and realises that Ulster's not going to waver at all, they're never going to accept a Dublin Parliament. He gets Tom Jones, his Cabinet Secretary, to broach Griffith and Collins with the idea of a Boundary Commission. And Gr- Griffith actually thinks it's, 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 it's actually good. This ultimately gives us uh, you know, huge chunks of Northern Ireland. Collins wanted a plebiscite. You know, he was adamant it should be a plebiscite. But, but Griffith thinks oh, it, it practically is that plebiscite. And, and, and even De Valera is, is okay with it as well. Once the, the treaty divide happens, even his alternative document, document number two, has the same provisions on Ulster as the treaty did. So, so the, the, the Boundary Commission, to me, is, is, is probably the biggest spectacular blunder of Sinn Féin throughout this whole period in accepting the Boundary Commission, not because of a, a Boundary Commission per se, but just the, the way it was written, the ambiguity of it, the amount of holes in that document or that clause of that document are frightening. And they had legal people with them at the conference. Like Charles Gavin Duffy was a lawyer. So how they didn't see that this is, you know, just nothing but pitfalls here. How can we accept such a, a vague, you know, indistinguishable clause? And, and particularly that notion of, you know, we will look at, you know, we will uh, change the boundary in line with inhabitants as long as uh, it takes into economics and geography in, into the equation. There would be loads of premises. You know, there was a lot of partitions happening at the time around Europe. You know, most recently, Upper Silesia, and, and they all got plebiscites. Now, Balfour said, we don't give plebiscites to uh, you know, victorious nations, they're only for loser nations from the First World War. Um, but the, the Sinn Féin, I certainly believe, could have got a plebiscite. They should have demanded that at the very least. And uh, the British government were always mindful of world opinion, and they knew that 
they could not fall down at Ulster because they, they had a very weak moral case, particularly when it came to Tyrone Fermanagh. That's why you often hear about Churchill talking about the dreary steeples of Tyrone Fermanagh or even uh, Lloyd George saying, I, I, you know, I, I do not know who would die for uh, Tyrone and Amp- uh, uh, Fermanagh, who, who would die for Tyrone and Empire. They didn't have a strong case on the whole six-county region being part of Northern Ireland, and they knew that. And, that, and that's why Sinn Féin should have stuck to their gun about a plebiscite because... Uh, they would have got a a solution which which would probably would have given Tyrone and Fermanagh a big parcel anyway to the free state. Well, that's absolutely correct, Cormac. And you find it hard to imagine that the unionist leaders would have accepted something so ambiguous for their side. And as you say there, with the economic factors being brought into account with the ambiguous Article 12, the unionists could have made the point that we need Derry City for our economic viability. We need South County Down for the water supply, for Belfast. Yeah, There's so many reasons why they could say, we're, we're not losing that part, we're not losing this part. Well, what, what happened afterwards? Like, the Unionist War, and you can understand that where they were coming from as well, they were, they were totally against um, the Boundary Commission because it did put big areas of their territory on their trust, and they were, they were not a party to those negotiations, even though you could argue their, their government, their government, the British government, was the ones who negotiated on their behalf. But they felt they weren't a party and that they were being lumped with this boundary commission. You know, it, it increased the already existing paranoia there. It, it, it increased the insecurity, particularly around the border regions. In fact, Craig said to Churchill in May of 1922 that this is the, you know, the root of all evil, this boundary commission. And they, they decided not to go with it at all. They, they were wavering. Actually, Edward Carson was, uh, was thrown up as, as being the Northern Ireland commissioner on it at one stage. They decided to wait it out. And obviously events changed in the South and... Government's changed in, in London as well in the interim period. And ultimately, the, the British government had to select the Northern Commissioner for them, um, who actually, again, with the look of the Ulster man, who couldn't have been more unionist in that look than if they had selected him themselves, with Joseph R. Fisher. But at the time of the actual treaty, the unionists were disgusted with the actual uh, Boundary Commission and they weren't going to work it. But then they actually decided to change the structures, in many ways, of the six counties, through abolishing PR, through gerrymandering councils to make them more unionist in outlook looking. And you even mentioned the water supply issue. The actual unionist societies in the early 1920s, after the, the treaty had, uh, had been signed, to actually create the water supply for Belfast in the Moor Mountains. So that then became a reason for keeping Uri in a, a north um, with, with the, the Boundary Commission. And even if you look at the Boundary Commission's meetings and its deliberations, they seem to skew all their economic and geographic factors in favour of the North and not of the Irish Free State. So there was a lot of bias there as well. That begs the question, why did Owen McNeil stay in the Boundary Commission and you know, why, why didn't he do his job properly? You know, that, that's another question again as well. Well, that does seem to be a major question that McNeil seems to be a one-man band. He doesn't seem to have been getting any uh, civil service support or discussing things with the Cabinet. It seems incredible looking back that he, he did such a poor job, really. It is, yeah. It, it's, it's very hard to you know, give him any uh, positivity, what he did. He just didn't, uh, he didn't consult the, the, the Irish Free State Cabinet. The commissioners were meant to uh, you know, deliberate amongst themselves, but Joseph R. Fisher in particular was, was leaking everything to everyone, so everyone knew that. Whereas McNeil just wouldn't play ball with the Irish Free State uh, uh, government. And then he says when he, when he resigns, you know, when it, when it becomes clear with the, the leaked report from the Morning Post in late 1925, 
and when he resigns, not only from the commission, but also from the cabinet and also even from the doll, says maybe I wasn't the best person to uh, speak with. Also, he, he, he had a full-time job at the Minister of Education. The, the other two commissioners, Fisher and Feetham, their job was, was commission. So, um, and they were, they were from a legal background. He wasn't. And, and, he, and even though he's from the North originally, from Antrim, but uh, he should have had someone like uh, Kevin Shields, you know, who, who ran the North Eastern Boundary Bureau, who, who knew the issue inside out, who was a solicitor, you know, he, he's from the North as well. He would have been a far better option to be commissioner than uh, McNeil. I wonder how much the British were prepared to give. I mean, we have quotes, for example, in correspondence between Lloyd George and Churchill, where Lloyd George says our position on Ulster is not a strong one. And what he's referring to is that they're going to be ruling over a lot of Northern nationalists, mostly Catholics, who don't want to be in Northern Ireland. And he's aware of that. He's aware that most of the West of Northern Ireland is very discontented with the settlement. I don't think he was just saying for that reason, and that was a reason. I think it was also for the world opinion their position wasn't a strong one, particularly in America. And he said, we're, you know, we're being eaten alive from a propaganda point of view. And that, that was always a, an issue, even during the treaty negotiations, that British wanted the negotiations to fail if they did on sovereignty, whereas Sinn Féin wanted them to fail on Ulster um, if they did. And, and that's, why, that's why Sinn Féin are often, uh, I think, unfairly uh, criticised for the treaty negotiations in that they, they kind of ignored Ulster. That's not true. Ulster was a huge part of their arsenal throughout the negotiations, and, and they kept on bringing it up. Um, but even even after the treaty and all of that, yeah, there, there is an argument. But it, it, Lloyd George was gone from late 1922. So when it came back to Boundary Commission being issued, it, it changes in government. In fact, it was a, the first Labour government who appointed uh, Joseph R. Fisher as commissioner, Ramsey McDonald's government. But then Nationals would have always thought the Labour Party would have been favourable to their cause because uh, Labour in opposition had been opposed to partition. But then they were oust, ousted out of government in November 1924. So by the time the actual... You know, the government came around, it was a strong majority government led by Stanley Baldwin. And he said, look, don't worry, Craig, you know, nothing's got to change here. You're going to have the charity you want. One of the ironies, though, I think, and we've talked about the treaty and how it worked out as regards its clause about partition. But one of the ironies in the post-treaty period is that the pro-treatyites don't think that they've signed up to a solidifying of partition. It's actually the pro-treatyites, in particular Michael Collins, who are the strongest about partition, certainly from a military point of view, but also from a civil point of view, things like funding nationalist councils in the north. Isn't that an irony? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's an irony because like, no nationalist was pro-partition, you know, so, and, and, and that, that still is the case. You know, you can talk about the iterations of Sinn Féin or, or even the Irish Nationalist Party. No one wanted partition from a nationalist perspective. And Michael Collins, uh, you, you have to, would have to say, of all the Sinn Féin leaders, seemed to care about partition more of an issue than, than the other leaders did. You know, it really did affect him a lot. And in fact, Lloyd George said to Churchill that you can get him to talk about nothing else. But his policy was all over the place as well, though. You know, he was, on the one hand, he was arming the IRA and, you know, um, having loyalists kidnapped. And, you know, he was nominally supportive of the Northern Offensive in May. Um, but then on the other hand, he was saying that I'm going to make this work. Um, you know, we, we had pacts um, with, with Craig um, in January and, and March. And, and obviously had these obstructionist policies uh, as well. He was the one leading that, even before he was killed there was actually a changes in Northern policy. So, so this is also important. And Ernest Blythe comes to the equation, and he's a very different viewpoint on how to treat the North than Collins did. And so does, so does Cosgrave, and so does uh, Kevin O'Higgins. So, so, you know, it depends on the personnel and the pro-treaty side you're talking about. They all have different policies, but the control that Collins had as chairperson of the Vision government, and then the head of the military as well, you know, he had huge control over all of policy up to his death. 
So when you talk about Portuguese side, you're really talking about Collins in many respects, who really cared about the North. But when he leaves the stage, you have a different viewpoint from the Comunidade pro-treaty government. But one of the outworkings of, of Collins' position is that a lot of the Northern IRA actually fought on the pro-treaty side in the Civil War, which seems bizarre, you know, in hindsight. Yeah, no, it does. Um, um, Collins did a great job of, of uh, getting their support. He, you know, people like Ona Duffy as well and, and Sean McKeown. And uh, yes, and that is true. Most people from the IRA and the North did support the pro-treaty sides. But obviously we, we had both pro and, and anti-treaty sides fighting together, you know, at one stage in the Civil War and all but name in the North in you know, the first half of 1922. And Collins wanted that kind of to prevent civil war by, by having a unified policy on the North from both factions. But as it happens, of course, the Southern Civil War over the treaty did break out. And again, one of the unexpected outworkings of that was it was the Southern side who imposed the customs border. Yeah, that, that to me, like, uh, it's something I, I brought up a lot in, in my book, Birth uh, Border, is this creation of the customs barrier. In, in many ways, this is when partition really starts to affect people's day-to-day lives. Uh, I'm not obviously uh, making light of the, the violence that accompanied partition. That did not affect every person, though. You know, it, it was in certain pockets of areas, particularly in Belfast and even along some border areas. But then when you have the introduction of customs, that's when the tangible day-to-day effects of partition become obvious. We can't cross the other side of the border without being stopped. Even though there was free movement of people, every person was stopped because they, they could have had goods on them. Um, and then that's when the actual partition becomes intrusive. James Craig said himself, there was no partition before customs barriers, you know, and he, he wanted the customs barriers removed for all time. The, the arguments put forward by the free state, being allowed to um, have their own tariffs, is only given to uh, the Sinn Féin delegation in the final hour of the negotiations. Before that, they, they were meant to have the same fiscal policy as Britain. But Griffith really wanted that. He, he believed that you know, when, when Britain sneezes, you know, we catch a cold and we're totally dependent on Britain and we need to be able to develop our own kind of fiscal uh, customs policy. So those are the reasons. It was, it was to make money as well for the Czech. Very much beleaguered exchequer. The Civil War was, was about to end. It was, you know, it's still happening in uh, March, April of 23. And it, they also believe that this is going to you know, um, help uh, and destabilize the North. You know, it's actually uh, it, going to prohibit partition. In fact, the, the opposite happened. You know, the North Ireland didn't, wasn't as dependent on North-South trade as it was on East-West. So it, in many ways, it, uh, it solidifies partition, it made it more tangible, it made it more real, and it even made it more difficult for the Boundary Commission, which hadn't met yet, to actually change the boundaries because uh, you had these infrastructures, these huts, the, this whole paraphernalia that comes with the creation of a physical border. And that was all uh, developed by the Irish side, the Irish Free State side. Well, Cormac, it's really interesting in your book the way you go into the difficulties of just the logistics of creating two separate states and separating all these different bodies like the legal system and the civil service and how this affects civil society as well. Things like sporting bodies, religions, all these different things. Can you talk about that, please? So my PhD, I did a chapter on how uh, my, my PhD was mainly about uh, sporting divisions, uh, but I looked, looked at the, the whole division within the Northern Ireland uh, context as well. But one thing that struck me when I was looking at other jurisdictions that either have been partitioned or united, you know, you could be talking Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, Germany, so on. One thing that's very unusual about the Irish uh, partition story is that most bodies at the time did not follow suits with the political decisions. They ignored partition. Whereas you go to most other countries, if there's a, a political partition, usually you'll have 
a sporting or religious, uh, you know, an, an organisational partitions as well to coincide with the political partition. That never happened in Ireland. And most bodies remained all Ireland bodies after partition and still are. You look at most sporting organisations, all the major religions, except for Judaism, are, are, are uh, on an all Ireland basis. A lot of trade unions, a lot of trade organisations. They just ignored the international frontier. And in many respects, you had actually unionist politicians who were totally opposed with unity on a political side, were calling for unity in sports. People like John Andrews, the second prime minister of Northern Ireland, was embracing an All-Ireland Hockey Association and said, if it wouldn't be great if we were like that in politics as well. You know, other people as well, that culturally, they were very happy to maintain an All-Ireland presence. Um, but uh, when it comes to political issues, both sides have been further and further apart. So that is, that's very un- unusual kind of a reaction to partition in Ireland compared to, to other countries. One of the points you make in your book, Cormac, is that it was the Northern administration that was brand new. The Dublin administration was in some respects a successor to the pre-independence administration. You know, people have often said, you know, that us, you know Ireland was never united before partition. So, so we're, not, we're not looking for to reunite countries because uh, it's never united in the first place. But in some ways it was under the Act of Union. The, the British treated Ireland like a very separate entity and actually... Uh, and all this paraphernalia administration of government was set up in Dublin. And not just public bodies, but in a lot of private organisations set up their machinery from Dublin as well. So by 1921, you had this huge infrastructure around government, around private sector, all headquartered in Dublin. And that had to be broken asunder. So it was quite easy for uh, Dublin government, in my respect, even if, if we take the example of the legal situation, they, they had uh, two kind of uh, legal entities, as in the the British Southern Ireland paraphernalia, the four courts and all of the other buildings and um, legal frameworks, King's Inns and so on. And then they had their, their own homegrown doll courts, whereas the North had nothing. You know, they, they had a couple of buildings they could use. They didn't have a, didn't have a, a Supreme Court, so they had to build that. That, that took the, a similar timescale as, as it took to build Stormont. So they had a temporary courthouse in Crumlin Road in Belfast, the Antrim County Council offices, which, which were not adequate at all. And then you had so many other examples of where Belfast was creating government departments from scratch through the work of Ernest Clark, the main civil servant responsible for this. But they did very little to go with. You know, he said himself, I'm armed only with a table, a chair and an act of parliament. He defined buildings for um, the departments. He defined the personnel for those, uh, each department. He defined even accommodation for the personnel. He defined furniture. He had to you know, uh, map out the buildings. A huge gargantuan task, whereas Dublin when the British left in, in the beginning of 1922, had most of, of those kind of uh, infrastructures in place. And Cormac, you've alluded already a little bit to the post-partition and post-treaty setup in Northern Ireland as regards politics, like they redrew electoral boundaries and so on. And, you know, it became a state which very much discriminated politically anyway against Catholics and nationalists. There can be no doubt about it, but Northern Ireland was a cold house for Catholics for decades after partition. And, uh, and first of all, you have the security element, and the specials remains, you know, it, and it is just a Protestant force. The RUC was created in the summer of 1922. They want to have one-third uh, Catholics in the RUC on paper, but they have to accept one-sixth in the end. And that dwindles down to one-tenth by the 1960s. The civil service, the big, big problem for Catholics was they have to... Uh, um, you know, have a note of allegiance to uh, the, the state and the king. And that's a big problem in terms of, you know, joining the civil service uh, uh, and other areas as well. And then you have um, people like Dawson Bates who doesn't want any Catholics anyway. 
to do. Like, there's a story of him actually uh, hearing it as a, a Catholic telephonist in his office. So he refuses to answer the phone. He's terrified to answer the phone because uh, he thinks all Catholics are secessionists and treasonists. She, she's, she, she loses her job or she's moved to another department. And then he starts answering his phone again. You know, so there is this inbuilt discrimination against Catholics in housing, in employment, obviously with security. When the, when the full force of the Special Powers Act uh, come into play in, in June 1922, it, they really go against Catholics, you know, internal auto Catholics, flogging Catholics, you know, a brutal form of, a, of punishment and very humiliating for the nationalist community. So, so there wasn't anything for the Catholics to be um, hopeful for or even embrace at that stage. And it, it generally did get, get uh, progressively worse as well. Now, I'm going to ask you a very counterfactual question, Cormac. I know it's something that we shouldn't do. But what do you think could have been done differently by nationalists and uh, Republicans at the time, the Dublin government and Northern nationalists, to alleviate the worst effects of partition in terms of separation between North and South? Well, the first thing they could have done, and actually should have done, is actually have a clear policy actually on the North. What is our policy here? That's one thing that strikes me. They had no clear policy. They were all over the shop. Like De Valera was one minute saying, we were going to coerce Ulster to come in. You're going to use force. We have to. Another minute said, we will never use force. And they had no policy on, okay, Ulster Unionists will come in if the British are out. But how is that going to work? You don't generally talk to Ulster Unionists. You, know, you use threatening language against them, as they do against you as well. And we have to be aware of. But what is your policy? Though? How are you going to solve this, what seems like an intractable problem? So there were a lot of things. They should have had a clear strategy. And actually, they should have engaged with Joseph Devlin, even though he was from a different political party. He knew the North better than most other nationalist representatives. So they engaged and tried to be unified on this issue from a nationalist perspective. That was one of the unionist main strengths. They were unified when it came to the national question. If there was more unity within nationalism at the time, you could have had better solutions. Even with the treaty, they could have done their homework more. The British were so well prepared for the treaty. They, they got to know through Dublin Castle and other people in Ireland who the Sinn Féin delegates were, what they could and could not agree to, what they said in the past. The Sinn Féin delegation didn't seem to know much about the British delegation. Now, they, they always said they didn't like the start of the game of politics, but they, look, they weren't negotiating with the British, so they should have done their homework at least. If they were going to go down the political route, as in embrace working with unionists, they could have made the Council of Ireland work. You know, that was still there. It was actually the Irish government uh, who, who gladly, with Ulster unionists, gladly got rid of it in, in 1925. And that could have been a way of, of actually you know, having kind of a, an all-Ireland solution, you know, get these north-south bodies work, which have, have obviously proved very successful with a with Good Friday Agreement. There were a lot of measures they could have taken. They could have gone you know, many different avenues. But the most important thing was they should have had a clear strategy from when they realised Partition is a big issue. This is going to be a real issue. We have to do something about this. And they put their head in the sand for way too long um, before events had kind of uh, overtook them. And they, 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 it was kind of too late in many respects, you know, by the summer of 1921, to kind of affect real change. My main issue is why didn't they have a clear, clear policy on the North? And, you know, one narrative of the period is that you have two states in Ireland that emerge and they're equal but opposite. One's Protestant state for a Protestant people. In James Craig phrase, the one south of the border is heavily Catholic. And in the 1937 constitution, it's preamble says it's a special position for the Catholic church and so on. What do you make of that argument, Cormac? They're two equal but opposite sectarian states. In my respects, the, the south did become a, a Catholic state. 
I think it's overplayed a bit, that argument, I would think, to a large degree. I think the, the Constitution was not as Catholic as a lot of people, certainly it's not as Catholic as the, as the Catholic Church would have wanted. But it was, it, look, it, it took on all of the paraphernalia of a Catholic state and the Catholic morals and the Catholic Church had, you know, had a huge uh, power over, over the state for, for decades, you know, as Northern Ireland become a, a Protestant state for 50 years where Catholics were um, discriminated against. We also have to look at how Protestants were treated in Ireland. Many Protestants got on with their lives in the South and you know, most of them kept their professions, they, a lot of them kept their wealth. They weren't uh, as openly discriminated as Catholics were in the North. Many did leave. You know, there's a huge decline in population um, from 1911 to 1926. We don't know the exact reasons uh, for that, but certainly partition was, was a big one. There is no question that religion definitely defines uh, both states for many, many decades. Cormac, what was the relationship like between the two states in Ireland from the Boundary Commission up until things started to thaw a bit with Lamas and O'Neill? Uh, Craig, when he said uh, he didn't want to change to the Boundary, this conference in 1925 where the Boundary Commission report is shelved and they, they keep the status quo, if Irish Free State Government knew they were in trouble with, with you know, keeping things the way they were because there was such expectation within nationalism that there would be wholesale changes... Um, and Kevin Higgins said, look, we need something. And even a, a, a Lord Salisbury, a peer um, of the Conservative Party, he said, look, what, what if you have a Catholic ombudsman, you know, someone like Joseph Devlin that will safeguard uh, minority rights in the North, you know, do something about policing as well, try and get more uh, Catholics in police. And Craig didn't want to banjing to do that. So he goes, uh, and he wants to scrap the Council of Ireland as well. And he um, um, and goes, look, why don't we do this? We can't scrap the Council of Ireland. The British will, you, you, you can be forego from your, a lot of your war debts. Which, which the Southern government accepts. And instead of the Council of Ireland, we meet up regularly. And they agree to that. And what happens? The first time a, a Northern Ireland Prime Minister meets a, a Southern Ireland head of state is, uh, is in the 60s with the Mass Meet O'Neill. They go farther and farther apart politically. They do communicate in areas like agriculture, particularly when it comes to foot and mouth disease, you know, disease of animals and all of that. There's a small bit of cooperation there. And they actually have a cooperation with um, railways, you know, the Great Northern Railway in the 50s. And also the Iron um, Hydroelectric uh, Scheme. But that, that, that was like, a, you know, pulling hen's teeth to the hydroelectric scheme, even though it was beneficial for both jurisdictions um, to have um, the ESP were going to suck a lot of the water from the iron, which would have freed up the land in Fermanagh to be um, to use for agriculture and so on. And obviously the South was going to get electricity. So it was beneficial for both states. Ireland was, was in favour. But it took a years for Northern Ireland government to cooperate in any way with, with the South. So most other issues, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't communicate with each other on a political level. They, they had very little to do with each other. In between then and now, of course, is the Northern Ireland conflict, the Troubles. But during the Troubles, I mean, surprisingly, in some ways, the constitutional question was never really as up in the air as perhaps it is now, Cormac. Well, the numbers just weren't there, I think, as well. There was a poll in the 70s, and that was decisive. Now, obviously, the Nationals uh, didn't participate in the poll, but it, it, it uh, was a decisive win for, for people staying in the Union. The, the arithmetic has changed now, and that's the reality, and, and we all know that. We all know that uh, there is a day when, when there will be a border poll. Now, I don't, I don't know when that's going to be. I, 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 don't, I don't even know when that should be, but uh, there is going to be a border poll. Personally, I think we should wait until we're... We're pretty sure it's going to pass. Look what happened in Scotland. You know, if they hadn't voted in 2014, it could be independent at this stage after Brexit. But I think, you know, let's, let's wait and see uh, what the numbers are like. And obviously Brexit has changed everything, you know, in terms of uh, that physical border there as well. 
dynamics change a lot since it was in 2016. You know, when we look at the, how uh, the Easter Island was commemorated, the dynamics change a lot now as well. And But you have, have this mind that the written tickets changed, and unionists realised that, that they're, they're no longer in the majority. And they were in the majority pretty much throughout the whole troubles. Well, thank you very much, Cormac. That was Dr. Cormac Moore. All the issues we've been talking about today, uh, you'll find in Cormac's book, Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition in Ireland. It's a really great read and it's well worth getting yourself a copy of. So if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes to show, you can go to irishhistoryshow.ie. We have a full archive of all our previous episodes there. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you hear an episode that you like, please share it on your social media. We really, really appreciate it. And we're very grateful for all the feedback we get off you, the listeners. So until next time, my name is Cahill Brennan, and on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.